to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. I'll do that again. Good morning. Nice. The first day of June 2016, here we are at Seven Oaks Country Club in Beaver for another wonderful Veterans Breakfast. Thank you all for coming. We have a lot of stories lined up today, probably more than we could actually get through. So if we didn't get you this time, we are going to get you next time, Dale, okay? We always like to begin with the national anthem, and we had lined up Bill Silver, a Vietnam Marine, whose wife volunteered him to sing it. But he was relieved of duty because we have a table of United Methodists here that includes part of a men's choir. And uh, so they are going to do the duty today. Thank you very much, guys. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's fast gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars for the Wonderful. Thank you. I was just talking to Dan Jones and Bill Silver earlier today, and I just thought, I, you, you'd never quite, I've never quite heard the national anthem properly until I started doing these breakfasts. It was maybe the fourth or fifth breakfast we ever had, and a World War II Marine, Bob Daly, came up to me, and he pretty much poked me in the chest and said, you need to do the national anthem before the breakfast. I said, yes, sir. He took the mic, he led the room in the national anthem, and it was truly like the first time I ever really heard it, you know? I mean, these men were singing it from their hearts, and it was something that uh, is, is, I think about every time we do the national anthem at these breakfasts. We have a, a wonderful special thing today. Uh, we have the junior ROTC, Marine ROTC, from Ambridge High School. And they are going to be performing the Battlefield Cross for us this morning. Sergeant, First Sergeant Carl Curtis is the, uh, is the instructor of the cadets. And uh, so they could come and do that now. Remember, honor, and impart the value and price of freedom. That is the mission of every citizen of the United States of America to embrace. During our brief history as a nation, hundreds of thousands have laid down their lives 
for the cause of freedom. More than 83,000 over the last century alone were captured, suffering unspeakable torment, while others have become missing and have not been found. Meanwhile, countless others have sustained injuries. Some were healed, while others were life-altering, leaving veterans to cope daily with a high level of anguish that they are often unable to speak of. Today, we honor, we remember, and we thank all who have suffered on our behalf for the cause of freedom. Having given all, we honor them with the Soldier's Cross. The Soldier's Cross, or Battlefield Cross, has its origins dating to the Civil War, when soldiers were hastily buried between battles. Their rifle was stabbed into the ground to mark their final resting place. Anything which identified the fallen was placed on the rifle so that others would know who eternally rested there. Today, service members on the battlefield are unable to attend the funerals of their brothers and sisters in arms. So the battlefield cross, or the soldier's cross, is placed in honor as a way to pay their last respects. Let us now review the meanings of the items that comprise the soldier's cross. The rifle. It is the most important tool to the United States fighting man or woman. It is the gorge to their livelihood and key to their survival. It is thrust into the ground, signifying that the one being remembered died in battle, fighting to the end. It also signifies that the battle is over when the rifle is left this way. The boots. They carry a service member through the fight for our freedom. They are the first and most important means of transportation. The boots are placed at the base of the rifle. They are worn and dirty, reminding us of the final march to the last battle. The dog tags. They are worn by each service member. They have imprinted into them all of the identifying information pertaining to that individual. The dog tags are hung from the rifle so that the names of the fallen will never be forgotten. The helmet. It is an important piece of protection on the battlefield. Some believe that the hat or helmet of the individual represents what the person stood for, and so the helmet is placed on top of the rifle. This is to signify that the battle is over and that a great sacrifice has been made. It will never be worn again. The soldier's cross, or battlefield cross, stands before you in tribute and in memory. As we honor, we remember, and we never forget. The American flag. The flag folding ceremony represents the same religious principles on which our country was originally founded. The portion of the flag denoting honor is the canton of blue containing the stars representing the states our veterans served in uniform. The canton field of blue dresses from left to right and is inverted when draped as a pall on a casket of a veteran who has served our country in uniform. In the armed forces of the United States, at the ceremony of retreat, the flag is lowered, folded in a triangle fold, and kept under watch throughout the night as a tribute to our nation's honored dead. The next morning, it is brought out, and at the ceremony of Reveille, run aloft as a symbol of our belief in the resurrection of the body. The first fold of our flag is a symbol of life. The second fold is a symbol of our belief in the eternal life. The third fold is made in honor and remembrance of the veteran departing our ranks who gave a portion of life for the defense of our country 
to attain a peace throughout the world. The fourth fold represents our weaker nature. For as American citizens trusting in God, it is to him we turn in times of peace as well as in times of war for his divine guidance. The fifth fold is a tribute to our country. For in the words of Stephen Decatur, our country, in dealing with other countries, may she always be right, but it is still our country, right or wrong. The sixth fold is for where our hearts lie, for it is with our hearts that we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The seventh fold is a tribute to our armed forces, for it is through the armed forces that we protect our country and our flag against all her enemies, whether they be found within or without the boundary of our republic. The eighth fold is a tribute to the one who entered into the valley of the shadow of death, that we might see the light of day, and to honor mother, for whom it flies on Mother's Day. The ninth fold is a tribute to womanhood, for it has been through their faith, love, loyalty, and devotion that the character of men and women who have made this country great have been molded. The tenth fold is a tribute to father, for he too has given his sons and daughters for the defense of our country since they were first born. The eleventh fold in the eyes of a Hebrew citizen, represent the lower portion of the seal of King David and King Solomon, and glorifies in their eyes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twelfth fold, in the eyes of a Christian citizen, represent an emblem of eternity, and glorifies in their eyes God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. When the flag is completely folded, the stars are uppermost, reminding us of our national motto, In God We Trust. After the flag is completely folded and tucked in, it takes on the appearance of a cocked hat, ever reminding us of the sailors who served under Captain John Paul Jones and the soldiers who served under General George Washington, who were followed by their comrades and shipmates in the armed forces of the United States, preserving for us the rights, privileges, and freedoms that we enjoy today. Thank you very much. Let's give a hand to Junior ROTC Marines from Ambridge High School. And let's give a hand also to their instructor, First Sergeant Carl Curtis. Carl, can you raise your hand? Thank you. Wonderful job. I know there are several people here today or here for the first time, or if you have a bad memory, you may not remember that my name is Todd, and I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, and we've been around for eight years, and our mission is to have public storytelling programs like the one we're having today, where veterans can come together with non-veterans like me and share their stories with the public. We also record interviews, and Kevin Farkas is the director of Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh, which is our oral history project. He's recording The Breakfast today, and we've cataloged hundreds of interviews with veterans and are archiving them at the Heinz History Center and also are very slowly editing them and putting them up on our website so that anybody could see them. 
We are a nonprofit, and we get by on donations and grants and sponsorships, and we're very grateful to have two sponsors today. The first is Clear Captions, and we have John Licious here with Clear Captions, uh, and you have underwritten this breakfast, and we're very grateful for that, John. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. What a great group. I mean, this is the third of these breakfasts that we sponsored, and this is by far the largest. But I can tell you just from my experience with working with you, and I keep telling my company that continues to sponsor it, this is the best event that we do. I mean, it's just really to see, you know, everybody here and everything that's here. So thank you, everybody, for your service, and thanks for coming together today. I do represent a company. I represent Clear Captions, and Clear Captions is a partner with the federal government in providing what's called caption telephone service. Uh, I, there are not a couple of people here that I recognize that actually have our phones, but caption telephone service is for individuals, American residents, that have difficulty hearing on the telephone due to hearing loss. It's uh, actually underwritten. Uh, there's no charge for the service. It's underwritten by what's called the Telecommunication Relay Service Fund, which is a fund which we all contribute into through our telephone bills. I have a copy of a telephone bill here. If you go home and take a look at your bill under the surcharges and additional fees, you'll see a fee of about $1 to $2 that you contribute every month into what's called the Telecommunication Relay Service Fund. The Telecommunication Relay Service Fund provides telecommunication assistance for any American resident for various speech and hearing limitations. Everything from being completely deaf to uh, normal hearing loss due to age, trauma, anything like that. We do a lot of programs with the VA. If anybody gets their hearing aids or anything like that through the VA, we get a lot of referrals for uh, caption telephone service through them. So what I want to tell you is if you have difficulty hearing on the phone, if you have friends, family, relatives in your circle that when you're on the phone with them, they've either given up speaking on the phone, they say, what, could you repeat that? I'm sorry, I'm he having trouble hearing you. This is a solution for them. It's provided at no cost. As a matter of fact, you've all contributed into the fund that pays for it. So you're qualified if you're an American with a hearing loss. You're entitled to it because you've contributed to the fund that pays for this since 1992, believe it or not. So um, I have some phone demonstration phones set up over here if you'd like to take a look, if you have any interest at all. I also have information on how you can sign up to get one. We come to your home. We set the phone up for you. We uh, show you how to use it. It's guaranteed for life, believe it or not. If you ever have any trouble or anything like that with it, we just come and we give you a new one. So, And the phone does belong to you. So if you move to Florida or if you spend time in Florida half the year and half the year up here, whatever, we can put a phone in down there. You can have take it both places, whatever you want to do. But it's a great service. I've seen it help a lot of people who have given up using the phone or have a lot of difficulty using the phone. So you can stop by, take a look. I'll answer any questions that you have. And once again, thank you very much for having us. Thank you, John. Yep. We also have Pam Whitus of uh, St. Barnabas Health Systems. Thank you very much, Pam, for sponsoring today. Good morning, everyone. Uh, like uh, Todd said, my name is Pam. I'm with B 
Beaver Meadows, which is now part of St. Barnabas. And I just wanted to ask if, if any of you are familiar with Beaver Meadows, if you've been there to visit someone or driven past by a show of hands. A lot of people. Okay, we're about five minutes from here on Tuscaroras Road, right around the corner. And I just wanted to explain briefly what we're all about. And if you would ever need us, certainly you could contact us. I left some flyers on the tables with my card on there. We are a personal care home. And what that is, is living assistance. We're between independent living and, say, nursing home uh, care for residents. So we are there for residents who are at the point where they need a lot of care and their family spending days and hours uh, taking care of them and they just, they really need assistance throughout the day. We have aides and nurses 24 hours a day. Uh, we also have physicians that come and round at the facility. It's a lovely facility. Uh, we have three veterans with us today here at our breakfast. We have Mr. Claire Schaefer, Mr. John Justy, and Mr. Ru Richard Cooper, all part of the Army veterans. Uh, so they are here today at this table here towards the back. And we have a wide range of residents. Our residents are very active. A lot of them need assistance physically. Some of them have dementia and need some extra eyes on them. We just started a new memory care program for those residents with dementia. Uh, wonderful facility. St. Barnabas just acquired them about a year ago. So we're in the process of making some changes, remodeling, and so forth. We also provide three meals a day for our residents. Uh, like I said, it's that great in-between care, in-between independent and nursing. Uh, we have activities. We have a great outside area for our residents and uh, lots of services we provide. If you have any questions, you certainly could ask me or my card is on the flyers. And that's about all. Thank you for having us and thank you for your service. Thank you, Pam. Our new newsletter is about to come out. It should be hitting your mailboxes in the next two weeks. Uh, we are scheduled. I finalized our schedule through September. If you don't get our newsletter, it's because we don't have your address. If we don't have your address, please leave it with us today so that we could send a newsletter in the mail to you. Our next breakfast here will be August 3rd. Just so you know, August 3rd, and it will be in the newsletter, and that's what the newsletter will look like. Uh, you know that I'm always hawking stuff. I've got a, a wonderful book, a biography of Bill Malden. Yes. I won't talk about how great that book is. <laughs> uh, but it is great, and it's 10 bucks, and I'll sign it for another 20. <laughs> um, we have shirts, we have hats, but I really want to plug this, because I'm very proud of it. It's our second magazine. If you recall, we did a magazine last year of the stories that we heard at our breakfast and in our interviews. This is a high-quality uh, magazine with veteran stories and photographs, and we've done the second issue, Veteran Voices, the magazine of the Veterans Breakfast Club. If Kevin weren't here, I would take credit for doing all of it, but because he's here, I have to tell you that he actually did it. He laid it out. <laughs> we have a lot of great stories in there. It's 10 bucks. If you want to support the Veterans Breakfast Club, buying a magazine is a great way to do it. We also have Larry Guggins here, who's the president of VVA 862, and I know you have an announcement to make. Just real quick, uh, and thank you, Todd. Yeah, I'm the president, or fortunate to be asked to be the president of the Vietnam Veterans of America here in southwestern Pennsylvania. I just want to remind you that a week from this Sunday, on June 12th, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Chapter 862, puts on a support our troops rally at the gazebo in Beaver, in the park in Beaver. So we just want to invite 
everyone to come. It starts at 5 o'clock. It's free. Everything's free. Everything's donated. I will mention that First Energy donated a significant uh, contribution that pays for all the, all, most of the food anyway. So I invite you to come there, 5 o'clock till whenever. Uh, there'll be some memorials, uh, short memorial service and then music after that. So pray for good weather, but please, uh, please come. Like I bring all you have to do is bring a lawn chair. We, we're even going to distribute flags, so you don't even have to bring a flag. But if you have a favorite flag to wave, please bring it along. So, Todd, thank you very much. There's one of these flyers sitting out by the front table if you want to see it on the way out. What date is it? A week from Sunday, June 12th, the day after Garrison Day in Beaver County. So thank you very much. Very Thanks, good. Todd. Thank you, Larry. And Larry's the only one who broke the dress code today and wore shorts. So if you want to hassle him for that, feel free to do, do so. Oh, no, okay. I've made it a practice these last few breakfasts to try and find the oldest veteran at the breakfast and honor them with uh, having them uh, share a story. And I'm not sure I identified the oldest veteran, but I think we're pretty close. We have a remarkable couple here, Anthony Lamia and Elda Lamia. They were both in the service. Elda was a Navy wave in World War II. Anthony was in the Merchant Marine and the Army in World War II. And I thought I'd start with Elda because I heard, Elda, that you are turning 100 in September. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and Elda, you joined the Navy when? In 1942? 42. And why did you want to join the Navy? I just loved it. I loved everything. I just wanted to be with them. What did you like about the Navy? I learned everything there. I learned how to get along with people. I learned how to eat everything that was put down. I just loved it, period. And your uniforms were great, weren't they? Oh, my, yes. I can still fit in them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much for honoring us with your presence here today. You're welcome, sir. She likes Cadillacs. You like Cadillacs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with your Navy service? No. 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 Completely unrelated. Okay. Right. Okay. And her husband is Anthony Lamia, and he and I were just talking a little bit before the breakfast uh, and he has a very interesting story, and I'm kind of trying to coax uh, the story out of him. When did you join the Merchant Marine, Anthony? I believe it was 1942 or 43. And why did you join the Merchant Marine? Well, you know, I had posters up at the beginning of the war of these merchant ships with all this flashing, bombs going off. I said, boy, I'd like to get into that, you know? <laughs> and... You guys, the Merchant Marine had a, a much higher pay than other branches, uh, but you also proportionally lost more men in World War II than any other branch of service. Yeah, I was in, I crossed the ocean three times in convoys, and luckily where we were, I was in about 100 or 200 ships in the convoy, and we were more mostly in the middle of the convoy, but Looking back at the end in the back here, the Germans used to like to pick off the, the ships that were on the edges on the back, you know. And you used to see a lot of smoke going up. And I said, boy, something 
went wrong here. Then there's um, the Corvettes, we call them tin cans, you know. And I see them rushing to the back of the, the convoy. I says, oh, oh, there's a lot of trouble there. So the destroyer escorts would rush back to where a, a yeah. ship had been hit by a, right. a German torpedo. Right. But, you know, there's a big story way before that. Well, I took my training at the Coast Guard Induction Center in Sheepshead Bay, New York. We went through boot training there. Then they sent us to Baltimore. There was about three or four ships there. We got training on there for a couple days. Then after that, we were back in New York again. They sent us into a hotel. It was the Chelsea Hotel. I think it was around 14th Street, downtown New York. And that evening, they had a big dance going on there. And so these two... These two celebrities come in. I don't know who they were. One was Carol Landis and one was Frank Sinatra. And we had a jitterbug contest. So there's about 20 of us couples on the floor dancing and an elimination. And I was, and this girl, we were the only ones left. And we won the prize of the best dancers on the floor. Whoa. <laughs> So I didn't even know who these two people were, you know. But after the first trip, like that one I just told you about, I went down to Broadway in the Paramount Theater. They had a big sign there, Tommy Dorsey Band here today and Frank Sinatra. And there was a poster of him up there on the top of the, the theater there. So when I got in, they show a movie first. And then after the movie, there's a, they pause for an admission. And then all at once, you hear a band playing, and they come right up out of the floor, out of the stage. And they says, ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra and Tommy Dorsey Bay. And I says, and I looked at him and says, I know that guy. <laughs> I was crying out loud. I said, I didn't even know who Frank Sinatra was, you know. <laughs> but anyways, after that, then... Well, I got to go back. You know, my first ship was a sailboat, was a two-master schooner. And when I left the hotel there, they said, Anthony Lamia, you got a boat in Boston. It's leaving this afternoon. This was about 9 o'clock in the morning. You got to get there. They're leaving for someplace. So I went to Boston, and I went to the dock down there. And, and I says, where's Annie Rubin at? He says, at the end of the dock. So, you know, those docks are all, you know, they're like shelters that you, you have to walk through. And so I walked through the end of that building, and I looked, and I says, I don't see no ship out here. So I went back to the guard down there. I says, where's that Annie Rubin? He says, did you go to the end of the dock? I says, no. He says, go to the end of the dock. So I went to the end of the dock, and I looked down there, and there's a 60-foot, a two-master schooner down there. I said, where the hell? I said, I got aboard that. Where's only five-man crew? The captain only had an eight by maybe nine room to sleep in. And the cook, and I was a deckhand. I was an ordinary seaman. And there was two ABs. So there was an old man cooking. And we all slept in one room. And if you had to go to the bathroom, you had to go over the side. 
And if you did a number two, you had to wait till Wade wiped you off, you know. <laughs> but anyways, we we left um, we left Boston and we went to um, where the Pilgrim Monument is and the Rhode Island there. We had to wait for winds there the following day, and they says. You stay on board and watch the ship, and everybody went to shore. So we were about a half a block away, and I was looking, trying to see what the heck's going on. And I see these girls walk around with dungarees on. I says, what the heck? They got corn, corn cob pipes in their mouth. I said, what the heck is that? And so anyways, we left there. We were going down the coast. And it, it was, we left in the morning. By the time we got almost down to New Jersey, they put me on the wheel to steer, the, steer that, that boat. I rapped on the window, and I said to the captain, you got to come up, up here. He said, what's the matter? I said, look at the deck. we got water on the deck. He said, oh, it's sprung a leak someplace, you know. And he says, well, we gotta, we got to get to shore. So we had a beach in an Asbury Park. We're about 100 yards or so away from the beach. And those waves were coming in about 10 feet high. They were knocking the heck out of that schooner. So anyways, they have all these armed guards along the beaches in them days. And uh, they spotted us with a big torchlight that they had there. And they said, we'll get you some help. So they had to go and get a beach boy, and they shot the beach boy about 100 yards and on top of our mast there, and we all hung on that. We all crawled ashore on that. We didn't even have life preservers on that thing, you know. And we all crawled down the rope, and we got ashore, and they sent us all to a hospital in Asbury Park. So the next day, me and my buddy, I says, let's go and see what happened to our ship, you know. So we went there, and there was nothing left. It was all broken up and everything. It was big waves. Really did a good job on that thing. So that job was over. So the next ship, I got a tanker. And I said, where's this thing going? And they says, we're going down to South America. We were carrying water down there to Cutersol. Uh, uh, it was a small little island down there. And when you go into that town, they open up a big gate, you go right through town, and you can see people on both sides, and they look like little midgets, you know. And um, so we went in the back of the bay there. We unloaded fresh water there, and then we had to go to Naruba to pick up oil. And that's what we did. We picked up oil in Naruba, and then we went back with a convoy again. We went to Halifax, Canada, and we unloaded that oil over there. Then we got the convoy again. We went back to New York, and I got off of that boat. I didn't like tankers, you know. So I, so the next ship I get, this is a, this is another one here. I think it was um, the SS uh, McGuire. I think it was. It was a Liberty ship. That's when we start having all this problem with German submarines sinking all these these ships that are ships that we had there. Well, we got to Liverpool, England. We unloaded, I think we were carrying a lot of 
fuel oil and any ammunition and stuff like that. But we stayed there about three or four days, and then we head back to New York, and like, they wouldn't let us stay on that boat. They said, we're going to recondition, we're going to make a troop carry out of that. So it went to dry dock, and we got off, the whole crew got off to that. Then I got on this other boat. This is a really good one here. This was an SS Blue Jacket. It was a reefer ship, and when I got on that boat, see, when you get on the boats in a merchant marine, they give you a card, and you put your card in at the Union Hall, and whatever date's on there, what hour, minute, because a lot of guys will throw in their card for that job, and whoever's got the longest, the, the oldest date on the card gets the job. So I got that job when I was still an ordinary seaman. So we go, we head out, and no convoy, because it was a pretty fast ship. It was about 27, 28 knot ship. It was a reefer brand new. We went down to Rio de Janeiro. We made a few stops there, picked up some stuff there, and then we went to Argentina. We loaded up there with a lot of beef on there, a lot of frozen beef. And we used to buy a leg of lamb, a leg of beef over there for about 50, 75 cents. Everybody in their foxels had a, a big ham hanging down, you know, you could slice a piece off and eat it. Anyways, we left there and uh, going along pretty good, pretty fast. That's why they didn't put us in a convoy. And so we got almost into England. One morning, I just got off a watch, I think it was 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning. All at once, I seen a bunch of flashes over the ship. I said, what the heck is this? I see tracers coming over my head. Them shells that were hitting the side of our ship and hitting those those hatches, what we call hatches. on On a merchant ship, you got five hatches. You got number one at the bow. Then number two after that, then you got two more amidship on each side. Then you go the back aft. You got another two two hatches back here, and they were all loaded up with solid with beef over there. Anyways, when they start all this action, I was assigned to a three-inch gun on the bow. And when I got there and my buddy, he had to go down in the hole and pass the ammunition to me, and I passed it over to the loader over there. They had two Navy armed guards. They called them all armed guards at that time. They were Navy men. They handled all the shooting. All we did was pass the ammunition. So I see all these traces coming on, and I look back, and I see puffs coming out of those hatches. I said, oh, we got hit a few places. And then the... The radio room where the guy slept there and had the radio room there. I looked up there and boy, shell hit there and blew that thing all to pieces over there. I said, oh boy. That was about close to four o'clock in the morning. When it got lighter, then everything stopped. And then I looked around, there was three three destroyers out there. And so we pulled into um, Scotland and the captain got on the phone and says, everybody on deck. So everybody gets on deck. We all line up. And these three captains come over. And they says, you know what? These guys gave us a good fight. And we looked at their destroyers. They were the next couple docks over. And boy, they were shot up pretty good too, you know. And um, 
He says, you know, we were coming back in to load up with some torpedoes. He said, if we had torpedoes, you'd have been gone today. And that was a story on that. So, so we were got, they British destroyers that had attacked British, you? Yeah, British destroyers. And they were just going back to load up again. They thought you were a German ship and they, they attacked thought, you. They thought we were a German raider because we were traveling so fast. But not only that, the signals, like radio man and their radio people got their signals all me- messed up. And they didn't get the right signals, and that's what started it all, you know. So did that whole experience inspire you to quit the Merchant Marine? After that, I got back to New York. I said, you know what, I think I'll be a, I think I'll be a soldier, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's safer in the infantry than on one of those ships, huh? Yeah, so I, I come back to Pittsburgh, and I went to the induction center, the, the volunteer. They says, you Merchant Marine? I says, yeah. He says, you got a release from the Merchant Marine? I says, no. He said, you got to have a, a release. So I had to go back to the, the National Maritime Union. See, everything was worked through the National Maritime Union in those days when the war was on. Even today, it's the same. And so I went back to the Union Hall, and I says, I was drafted in the service. I told a lie. <laughs> he says, okay, well, we'll write. he wrote me up a letter, released me, and I took it. Oh, matter of fact, when I was <laughs> when I was flying back to Pittsburgh on a TWA, it was props in them days. I had a shark skin suit on, gray with pinstripes, and I was I was black as the ace of spades because when you pass the equator down there, you get initiated, you know, when you go down in that area down there. And we used to use butter on ourselves to get a tan, and I was black. I mean black. <laughs> So I get on this here plane, and then we take off. This lady says, are you one of those polo players from the Argentina? I says, no. I says, I'm not. I mean, I was sharp, boy. I looked good, you know. <laughs> she sat beside me. <laughs> well, Anthony, maybe if you come again, you could tell us about your Army career oh, next yeah. time. How about yeah, that? that? that's a good one. Thank you very much, yeah. Anthony. Thank you very much. We have Dr. Bob Ryan here, who served in a, on a ship also. Thank you, Todd. What, this, is a, this is you? Uh, this was after a boot camp at Great Lakes, Illinois, and I was visiting. I had my two weeks off, and I was standing in front of my aunt and uncle's house uh, in Dayton, Ohio, which is where I came from, and uh, somebody decided, I think it was my uncle, wanted to uh, take my picture in my Navy uniform, um, I can't get that thing on anymore. I, I, I was going to say, either <laughs> the uniform's very big or you're very skinny. Look at those bell-bottoms. Big old bell-bottoms. I, I would, somebody wanted me to march in a veteran's parade in uniform. I said, huh <laughs> Why did you join the Navy? That's a, that's a good, good question, and I wondered after I got in there why I did that. My, <laughs> my story really started in, uh, in 1963 when I graduated from high school. Uh, and I immediately enrolled at the University of Dayton as a, as a student. And uh, my path to the Navy was, uh, came pretty quickly because I was not a very good student. Uh, academic probation, all those kinds of things were going on. So uh, at, at age 18, 19, I was not suited to be a college student. And I threw everything, I threw it all in the air, and I went down and joined the Navy. 
Uh, why the Navy? I don't know. I like the uniforms. Uh, I thought I would get to see a lot of stuff around the world. I went to basic at Great Lakes, and as soon as I came out of basic, they sent me to Bainbridge, Maryland, uh, to a Class A school to become a personnelman, uh, which is really a, a ship's office kind of function. And uh, then I was assigned to Washington, D.C. For, for two years. So life wasn't too bad. In fact, it was pretty darn good. Until a year or so before my enlistment was up, I got orders to a destroyer called the USS First. There's a lovely picture of that uh, bucket of bolts. No, that uh, lovely ship. <laughs> it, was, it was commissioned in 1945, and actually that was the year I was born. But I served on it as a 19, 20-year-old uh, second-class petty officer. And uh, we left Norfolk, Virginia in March of 1968. Can I ask you, what does a second-class petty officer do? As little as possible. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's actually not a bad place to be as far as the enlisted ranks. It's an e E5 for those who are Army and so forth. That would probably be, uh, what, a sergeant, I, I would think. Okay, so like sergeant. That. Yeah, and, and, and you'd usually be over a, a couple of guys, but the, the E5s got out of everything. We didn't have to carry ammunition when we took on ammunition. We didn't have to do a heck of a lot, and I was the ship's, uh, ship's clerk, so that made it pretty easy okay. uh, as far as duty is concerned. But I'll talk a little bit more about another duty that I was assigned to because when I reported to that ship uh, before we left for Vietnam, which is where we land, well, ended up after a cruise through the Panama Canal and went across the Pacific, I was assigned to a gunfire support team. So in our 24-hour, six-on, six-off, six-on, six-off, six of those hours I would spend at more or less uh, General Quarters Station uh, converting uh, yards that the Marines called to us on the beach to mills, crank it into the computer, the gun turrets that you see there would turn, move, and somebody else would put in ship speed and wind speed, and bang, bang, away we would fire. Uh, all under the guidance of a, a marine spotter on the beach. So I was on one of those gunfire support teams when I was not typing or otherwise doing record keeping and the things that I was trained to do. I had another job, uh, which most sailors do. So off we went in March of 68 through the canal and out across the Pacific, and we trained and trained and trained. Destroyers are built to chase down submarines. Well, North Vietnamese did not have submarines, so we knew we weren't going to be doing that, but we did a lot of training trying to find submarines with our sonar. And then eventually we got to, uh, to offshore and to the Tonkin Gulf, and we were given two assignments. Each one lasted 30 days. We would first plane guard, what they call plane guarding, for the uh, USS America, which is an aircraft carrier. They would station three destroyers, one port side, one starboard, one aft. And if a pilot returning from a mission would go down, we would go pick them up. So we would chase that aircraft carrier around for about 30 days uh, in the North China Sea and Pacific and out that way. And it was so interesting. I served on the bridge a lot. I was up there an awful lot. And the planes returning from their missions over uh, North Vietnam would fly right over our bridge as they landed on the aircraft carrier. And we would see tree branches 
all kinds of stuff hanging from the wheels and the wheel wells. Those guys had to be flying close to the ground, real close to the ground. And uh, we, we never had to pick up a pilot. Uh, we didn't witness that. So that was our 30-day job. And then at the end of that, we got a more interesting job, and that was uh, gunfire support for Marines on the beach. We would pull within a mile or a half mile of the shore and cruise up and down and up and down and wait for a call from the Marines to provide gunfire support. And I'll never forget our first call for gunfire. Um, the Marine there wanted to they'd give us grid coordinates to place a shell in a certain area. And they called it a Viet Cong tax collector. It was really a convoy. And what they wanted us to do from about five miles away is hit the lead truck and hit the last truck. They would mop up the middle if we hit them both. So uh, we, we five miles away. Oh yeah, we were out at sea, and this this was on Highway One. They were transporting guns from the north to the south. So uh, naval gunfire was even though it's a 1945 destroyer, naval gunfire is very very accurate. So we were in, I was in the, in the room at the time, and uh, again, as I said, my, my job was to convert yards to mills. And so we'd fire a tracer shell into that grid coordinate, and the Marine on the beach would say, well, I need that thing 50 yards to the left, or 65 yards to the right. And I would convert those yards to mills and crank it into the computer, and another guy would put in the exact speed that we were traveling, as well as the wind speed. And that would zero in right on the target. We fired, and he said, fire for effect. We turned uh, all the guns loose and fired for effect. We took out the lead truck. We took out the aft truck in a very short period of time. And they were able to mop up the middle. So that's the, we would do that for about 30 days at a time. And it was on one of those occasions where we got a little too close. Uh, we were only about a half mile offshore. And what the North Vietnamese would do is they would place bamboo sticks in the water so that they could track us and see what our speed was so that they could train the shore batteries on our ship. And they did. They trained it right on us. And uh, we took three direct hits off the coast. I thought the doggone ship was going to sink. Uh, as I, I, I have a, a accounting of that whole whole incident, uh, I was below decks at the time when this incident occurred. There was one man killed and three, uh, two injured. Um, we were steaming along, and w when, the, when the hits came, we tried to return fire, but we could not reach them. They were too far away. And so we, uh, we started taking on water, and I only got concerned when the captain ordered to make preparations to abandon ship. Well, that's about the last thing I wanted to do. His abandoned ship, but we all had our boots tied around our neck. We'd been trained to do that. If you're going to abandon ship, take your shoes with you. You might end up on land again. And so uh, we had our shoes tied around, and we were just waiting for the order to go overboard and and jump the ship. Fortunately, the Air Force was not too far away. So thank you to the Air Force. Uh, they kind of saved our life, I think. <laughs> and uh, they went in, dropped some 500 pounders on the spot where we had identified where the shore artillery was coming from. And we steamed out of there, went back to the Philippine Islands. They patched us up, put deck plate on. We were in the Philippine Islands. If anybody's ever been there, it's a place you really don't want to go again. But we spent about three weeks getting all patched up and everything, and we get to go back in and do it again. And that was my Navy experience, but it was also a lesson in life. I determined 
at that juncture in my life that I wanted to go back when my enlistment was over to Dayton, Ohio, re-enroll at the University of Dayton and become a high school English teacher. And that's what I did. <laughs> wow, that's great. Bob, a couple things. First of all, it strikes me, <clears throat> how should I put this politely? First time when you're at the University of Dayton, you're 18 or 19 year old, not really studying very much. No, you're I a kid. Well, the thing was, I had gone to an all-boys Catholic high school. Yeah. And then when I went to college, they had these things called girls. <laughs> I decided books weren't so important anymore. <laughs> and it just strikes me that then there you are, you know, just a year later maybe, in the mm -hmm. Gulf of Tonkin. Right. Kind of, you know, directing fire and doing a very important job that lives depend on. That's quite a transition from a carefree college student to... Somebody. That's why being a high ship. school English teacher was not so daunting. <laughs> you also have this. I do. And what is that? Can you explain yeah. the domain of the Golden Dragon? The domain of the Golden Dragon is when you cross the parallel uh, into, um, uh, as you go through the Pacific to the west, and you enter the domain of the Golden Dragon just before you reach the Philippine Islands. Uh, it changed a whole day. And that's the domain of the Golden Dragon. And everybody on the ship received one of these plaques. And those are the, the uh, combat medals that we won down there at the bottom. Uh, a Vietnam Service Medal, the Vietnam Campaign Medal with a bronze star because we got shot at and hit, <laughs> and the National Defense Service Medal. So uh, that's a treasure that I have as well as my uh, honorable discharge. And there it is. It was an honorable discharge. It was an honorable discharge. And I'm as proud of that as just about anything, uh, being a Navy veteran. And I want to pay my tribute to all my fellow veterans who have served in all the wars. Um, we, we've all made a contribution in one way or another. But real quick, I can say, I talked to a friend of mine the other day and I'm trying to get him to come here. He's a Navy veteran. But he said, Bob, I don't have anything to say like you do. You actually saw some activity and were shot at and those kinds of things. He said, I was on an aircraft carrier that went to the Mediterranean. And I said, I wish I could have traded places with you. <laughs> and I said, but Bill, you know, you got a story to tell too. Because I know from looking at reading books and looking at statistics, it takes 20 men and women to put one person who can fire a gun in the field. So 20 people are doing very important jobs, even though they might think all they're doing is sitting on the sidelines, they're somewhere else, they're in the Mediterranean, pulling into Barcelona and having a good time. But we need all to do their job and it makes it so much better. And that's what makes coming to the Veterans Club so interesting for me to come here and share a little bit of my, my story as well as my life story, too. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much. And our, our motto is, every veteran has a story. I hope you do encourage your friend to come. Kevin Farkas was one of those guys on a on a carrier in the Mediterranean. And, uh, you know, we do interviews. And in fact, at one point, I think about a year and a half ago, we did so many interviews with combat veterans. We said, hey, let's take a break and do some non-combat veterans. And, and it's, it, they're, they're fascinating stories. I, I, absolutely. No matter where people served, uh, no matter whether they liked it or not. In fact, I love the interviews where they didn't like their service. Those are very interesting. Pat, Cody, did you like your service? 
Yeah. You did? I think I did. You've been coming to these breakfasts for a while. I don't have any photos of you except one. That one with the president. I have to be careful what I say. One of my buddies that we served vacation in the islands together is here. So. Chuck. Chuck Beto. Yeah. Yeah. You use a Marine also. Yeah. Um, but I was at the Heroes Project a few weeks ago at the Henry Mancini uh, Art Center, the, the play that the kids put on, and I saw a wonderful little video of you talking oh, about your you? service. Yes. And I actually saw you there across the room, and I thought, I've got to get this guy to talk next time he comes to a breakfast, so here you are. Why did you join the Marines, and when did you join? Well, the first time I joined was in September 15th of 1942 at a place called Penn State. My old alma mater was available of Mount Nittany meets the Eastern Sky and all of that good stuff. But uh, I think everyone was doing it. And when we were in high school, one of the guys that had graduated the year before came home. And I believe the dress blues may have uh, had something to do with it. But then I had a friend from New York that assumed once he went in, he'd get a set of dress blues. But he didn't make those blues till two or three years later. Anyway, I didn't go in until March of uh, 43 and vacationed at a place called Paris Island. Uh, (laughs) We were fighting the Civil War at that time. (laughs) And uh, we had a group of rebels among us. And one of the fellows was a minister's son, and uh, he and the this uh, rebel NCO got into it because he stepped on his heels. So we had an ongoing fight for quite a while. And the one time we were out at a field kitchen and everyone said, keep the drill instructors busy. We're going to settle the north-south skirmishes. Uh, anyhow, the minister's son kept backing off and backing off and saying he didn't want to settle it that way. Uh, so the fisticuffs began, and one punch was swung, and the rebel was on the deck. And the third time he got up, he decked him again. Didn't tell him that he had done a lot of boxing. So that sort of settled the Civil War. So the minister's son was a boxer, after yes, all. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but anyhow, we had some interesting experiences. Probably about 80% of the platoons when we were in boot camp were still carrying the 03 rifles. Oh, wow. And those people fired the M1 for familiarization. And we caught up with some of them later in the islands, and they still had the M1 rifles. But uh, I didn't do well on firing because about my third shot in the prone position, I had some oil in my eye and couldn't see. Well, nobody could see the oil, so anyway, I wound up a marksman, and I always thought I could shoot a little better than that. I did it several times later, but uh, with another experience, our drill instructor said, if you people get this accomplished, you can go in swimming, and the platoons were by height. We were in the second second section so we got the job accomplished and the first people are racing off into the water and i'm thinking wow they're sort of slowing down and by the time we got in we were in mud up to about our ankles and those fellows were in mud up to their knees so after we got out of there we spent a lot of time (laughs) cleaning up and the drill instructor thought that was very hilarious (laughs) but anyway (laughs) 
and it wasn't Saturday either. The other thing we used to do was if you if you messed up, we were in the PB barracks, which were pine boards. You got to count all the knot holes in the barracks, and if you messed up a little more, you got to drag all your stuff out, bring buckets of sand and bricks in, and holy stone the deck. But we accomplished that, and one time during boot camp, we had breakfast about 3 a.m. and went down to the parade ground, and everybody's saying, what the <clears throat> is going on here? But anyhow, come about 8.30 or 9 o'clock, someone said, well, he's here, and we were so far back we couldn't see anything other than road guards, and a fellow named Franklin Delano Roosevelt went touring down the road, but we never saw him. And one of the guys, several days later, got a paper from New York and had a picture of the president out at the rifle range. So I guess I came close to seeing President Roosevelt. <laughs> when were you finally sent overseas, Pat? Uh, well, after, after um, a boot camp, uh, we, I wound up uh, in the, at Cherry Point, and they sent us, we were like in a casual outfit, we had a fellow named Big Jake that was supposedly a master sergeant, and his previous MOS had been a brig warden at Sing Sing or something. Always had a cigar in his mouth, and on occasion we saw the major in charge of us, and he would salute him with the cigar, and that would be all we'd see of the major. And for the rest of the day, you were on S detail, uh, which had an S after it. <laughs> but <laughs> anyhow... I uh, got, uh, we got picked for a, a school and sent to Naval Air Technical Training Center in Jacksonville, Florida. I wound up uh, going to the Armor School, and we had sort of a different class. We were half Navy and half Marines, and they called us a, with a, started with a B. And uh, anyhow, uh, and we, I'm sure the Navy and Marines got along well. Right. Well, we did. We Good. did in that Good. point in time. Okay. And that uh, was prior for them taking us places and leaving us and not coming back. But anyhow, <laughs> we had what we lovingly termed Gestapo, which were mostly staff and gunnery sergeants that hung out in barracks looking out the window to see if you were out of step or your somebody's shoe was untied. And if you did that several times, then you had, you had a lot of... EPD to do and on one occasion they're drilling us and finally this one guy said halt you know blankety 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 and every other person was a sailor and they said you people in blue over there you how they were stand fast so they went back to drilling us in two different sections but we managed to get through it uh, then for some reason or other they transferred our entire class to Norman Oklahoma N-A-T-T-C, Norman, and uh, going out, we had this fellow, an Irishman, Iosi. Uh, anyway, we're in Atlanta, and we had several hours layover, so someone said, can we get off of the train? They said, sure, so we're lined up out there, and then someone said, well, uh, what do you say we take a trip around town? So anyway, he's marching, let's call him a Tuesday, and we come by a big fruit stand, somebody hollers, hey, Sarge, we could use watermelons. Anyhow, a number of watermelons joined the group, and down the road it was left shoulder, right shoulder watermelons. In the meantime, the chief in charge of the Navy, the Navy car wouldn't let those guys go ashore. 
But anyway, we had a good trip at uh, Oklahoma. They had the place all fenced in, and they had a horse patrol. Never made that one, though. But uh, we used to go on, into Norman on Liberty on, uh, on streetcars. The modern was up front, and they had the section, and on the back section was lattice work doors where they haul freight and so forth. And sometimes at night it was interesting coming back, people getting stone gullion and so forth. But anyhow, one time we had about 10 waves in the background, and this fall was having a great problem. But anyway, it was an interesting thing. <laughs> but the cat, we had, uh, when you got on base, they had what they call cattle wagon semis that took you around to the different places. We did wind up restricted, and we finally wound up getting back to the East Coast, and I wound up in B-25s as an armorer. We did practice there, then to the West Coast, and more practice, and we had several pilots. One of them should have been flying fighters, but he was flying under bridges and all that good stuff, but uh, it was an interesting fellow to fly with. We eventually uh, headed for the Pacific. We stripped all the armament off of our planes, and they flew into Hawaii, and then were rearmed there, and we, we, ma we made the trip by boat to Esperito Santos and wound up down there with a captain in charge of our ground crew and probably every other person in the, in the in the area was a major or lieutenant colonel. So guess what? Most of our outfit wound up on S-details again. And when our CO arrived, he was a late colonel, our XO had just picked up light colonel. So with two lieutenant colonels aboard, we got back all of our equipment and we got off at detail. And we also helped build a big stockade for the brig because somewhere along the line, the guys find a whole bunch of beer that the army had on the docks and uh, with a bunch of drunken jarheads. But anyhow, we survived and then eventually uh, hopped up the islands to a place called Green Island. We operated off of there with uh, Corsairs and two squadrons of SVDs. And I was the uh, armor, a PFC. My helpers were two corporals that went through the Marine Corps school. And then we had a sergeant with an office poke that wound up on our crew. And when a new flight crew came aboard, guess who they went to first? And eventually, the guy wearing the sailor hat and the PFC stripe, anyhow, we, we survived. So when something didn't go well, guns, ammo, or anything of that nature, guess who, guess who flew? And I flew 17 combat missions. We're flying one time in kind of an open formation, and I'm looking out. I'm up front with the navigator and the pilot, and I can see tracers arcing over the ship. And I said to the navigator, I wonder if they are aware they're being shot at. He said, don't worry about them. They're shooting at us also. So I began to look down on the deck there and say, wonder where the next one's coming from. But it was it was uh, interesting. We we did while we were in the Hebrides lost one crew doing a night mission. That was April twenty fourth, nineteen forty four, and I believe it was two thousand and ten. They buried those folks in Arlington. 
they finally recovered the body. So we had always thought there were only five men aboard, but there had been seven men on the crew. We lost several other several other crews. Uh, we lost one off of Raval, and they were floating in with the current, had the raft shot out from under them. And the PTs went in and stirred things up. We had a squadron of gunboats, and they were really heavily, heavily armed. And only one one of the fellows was uh, was wounded. But Dumbo went in and got our crew out. And uh, eventually, I rotated back to the states. And uh, one of my buddies from high school came in as a replacement. And Chuck went somewhere north. I don't know where he went, but we didn't get to come back together. We got to come back on a ship that that had a bent screw and was hot running high in the water, and the numerous people made the trip by rail. But got back from there, uh, came, to, came back home, and uh, had a furlough, and I was in for a while. Married married one of the girls, or as we told, I was issued one of the girl Marines, and I was in till July of '46. Uh, uh, and when I left Lejeune, uh, they didn't have time to roll me over as a reservist, so I had to go in on the 22nd uh, RS Pittsburgh, and uh, signed up in that. Spent some time in that. Also recruited a bit. And only sent one of those guys to Korea. But I got recalled, was back on active duty with 210 whenever they uh, shipped out to the West Coast, reinforced the 1st Marine Division, which was in uh, Korea as the 1st Brigade, bringing it up the street. Eventually, was hard shipped because uh, at that time we had four on the ground and one in the oven. And. <laughs> Anyhow, I did get back to Korea. I did get to Korea in 1975 with the Marine Corps League. And this is a picture of you as commandant of the Marine Corps League. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Even got to do the salute at the Sunset Parade. The kid brother went in 50. He and two other guys, they didn't, uh, at Christmas vacation, I uh, took them into Pittsburgh. The one fellow was Mike Carnish. His maiden name was Mealy, and he said, I ain't going into any blank, blank Marine Corps being called Mealy. So we went to the JP, and everybody swore that we knew him as Michael. Then I took him to a Burley Coosh shoe show, and they got him off on the right foot. They all made it through boot camp. The kid brother made it to the 8th and I with the guard company. Never did get to see him down there, but when he was there. I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you if you could bring photos of yourself in the Marines. And I ask that to everybody here. Uh, if you bring photos of yourselves in this service, I could make a copy just with my little dinky camera here. I don't take the pictures home with me. And then I have them uh, for reference and also have them to show on the screen. Now, there are other ways I could get your pictures. I'm a creeper on the internet. I'm the creepiest guy. I find you and I find a picture of you and I put it up there. So, but Pat, I couldn't find any. You're, the internet is wiped clean of your presence. So, you always, need to bring photos always here. I broke the camera. That was the reason. <laughs> one, one more thing on the trip, on the trip to Korea. I went back with a number of Gold Star mothers. God bless them. And when we got back, we went and visited their complex out on the West Coast. 
and we we had the wife and I had worked with them locally, and uh, uh, God bless all of them. Another thing that I got involved with early on when when our uniforms would fit before they shrunk, uh, we had 46 reburials from World War II in the area, Midland industry, you know, Hyaville and so forth. And I made 43 of those funerals, including the two Marines at our detachment that I went to high school with, I was named after. And that sort of got a number of us motivated. And I believe, without exaggerating or stretching the numbers, that I've participated in about 2,000 funerals since then. And I'd like to borrow a couple of those young people to help fold the flag because we get some that are very difficult to fold. And it's not easy when you finish and fire the volleys and so forth and present the flag to the husband, wife, or so on. And I did that a lot with the folks that came back from Vietnam. And it's not an easy job, but somebody has to do it. Thank you, Pat. Don, why don't you stand up here? This is Don Johnson. You served in the Coast Guard. Yes, I did. And I know you're here to talk about your brother-in-law, but I thought I'd ask you about you first. Well, this is about Ed. Don, I know, but I just want to ask first, uh, why did you join the Coast Guard and when did you join? I joined in 1964. Like most of us at that time, the Vietnam War was, you know, right on the edge. And uh, same like a lot of us. I was 17 years old. My parents had to sign for me to go in. And out of our class, I went to New Brighton High School. Uh, Out of our class back then, 25% of the people went into the service. 25%. That was a common thing back then. You didn't go to college. You either went to work or went to the service. And I joined. And Why the Coast Guard? I don't know. Maybe because my dad was in the Navy and... I think I joined the military because our whole family uh, has the tradition of the military service clear back. You know, we were like uh, Revolutionary War, World War One, World War Two, uh, Korea. And so it seems like our family just did that. And it seemed like a good thing to do. I I enjoyed the time there, and after four years, it was tired of it and time to move on. So then you go to college, and and that becomes a part of your life that you always remember. And this was the ship you were assigned to? Yes. That was small. Yes. uh, Well, in Vietnam, all these, these are 82-footers. Oh, okay. That's uh, uh, Point Glover, and they were all transported from the U.S. over to Vietnam, on board there, it's it's a small crew. The armament on it was uh, 50 calibers, and on front is a 81 millimeter mortar. As time goes on, believe it or not, just about a year ago, I met the XO of the Point Kennedy. After 43 years later, you run across somebody that was there just by accident. You know, you run across and you tell stories. and But uh, these units were assigned the whole way from 
mostly from Saigon clear around to the uh, Cambodian uh, border and there was patrol areas that we served in and we boarded junks uh, look for contraband uh, there was a crew of usually seven or eight on board, and we were supported by motherships, uh, like which was, I was on board also. The, they were Coast Guard cutters that were uh, 311s in length. We also worked closely with the Navy Swift boats. Uh, we were the place where they could come on board and actually take a break. Okay. Because you get clean showers and stuff. And even on the 82-footers, 82-foot uh, sounds like a lot. But when you're out in 10-foot swells, wow. it's it's a little bit different. So yeah. uh, we had gunfire support missions, uh, boarding junks. Uh, the Coast Guard lost uh, two men in a related attack on an 82-footer and the uh, Navy Swift boat. But uh, it, it was a year over there, and like I say, we all all did our part. But that's just brief. But Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about yourself okay. a little bit. I, I, know what... I know you weren't expecting it, and yeah. you, you were expecting to talk about your brother-in-law. Yeah. To pay like... tribute to him. All right. This is tribute to my brother-in-law who recently passed away. And it's a story about all of us, like the Vietnam vets, and what you learned and what happened to you in life. And the story pertains to all younger veterans too, especially Persian Gulf and Afghanistan. And at the point that I want to bring out is my brother-in-law was a, a quiet guy and he was raised in the farmland up around Greensburg, Indiana, PA. He put himself through W&J College and earned a law degree and while at WNJ, he was in ROTC. So now you can see where this story is going. This was in 65, and the war was building up. But after he graduated from school, he got married and had two children. So he was deferred. But then as Vietnam escalated, naturally, he got called. So he went to uh, Fort Hood, was trained there. And he was trained uh, in infantry. So you know what happens at that time in 1970. So he was sent to Vietnam. Uh, I have to emphasize his age because he was 29 years old and had a family. So this goes to show what you're thinking, your lifestyle, and what you've learned. And now all of a sudden they send you to Vietnam. And so he sent to Vietnam as a first lieutenant army officer infantry. <laughs> wow. So, you know, he and being almost 30 years old, he sort of knew what was going on. But fortunate for him was he was, after two months of pounding the ground, he was promoted to captain, and then he was put into the 525 Military Intelligence Brigade, and he operated outside of Saigon. And he was part of the recon um, operation uh, for gathering intelligence on Armin's enemy movement and, and such. And he also worked with the OV-1s in their reconnaissance. And the thing was, what I want to emphasize about my brother-in-law 
was that he he's always a loyal, honest, hardworking, severely patriotic guy, but Vietnam changed him. I mean, he, this is when he was about ready to leave. He always did his job well. As a matter of fact, he never talked about Vietnam at all. All the years that I knew him, even to me being there, he wouldn't talk to me. And we didn't even know he earned a bronze star till after he died. So his attitude changed uh, while I was in Vietnam because he had a very high security clearance in what he did and what he saw. We found this out just by accident in some paperwork he had, and I sent for all his information. Uh, his Bronze Star is not for valor, but according to the administrative records, he received it for the recon work and the information and stuff that he received, you know, during his tour in Vietnam. But what he learned from this experience in Vietnam changed him drastically. When he came back, he was a different person because when he was in college, he graduated a law degree and his whole life he was a judge. And so he was very fair and very honest, but he was very critical of the government in policies and things like this. So with that helmet that was there up, turned upside down uh, with the flowers grown in it, this is near the end because of the stuff he'd seen and had to do. It changed him, and you can see where the, the comment, you know, shall beat their swords and make them into plowshare. But uh, he came home, and it was so typical. Uh, he flew, came back to McCord, no welcome, went back home. He felt... Uh, abandoned and unsupported, and he forgot about it. He he just completely forgot, never never said, but it affected his life and how he performed and his philosophy on life. And um, he got sick later in life, and it took him 43 years to get help after Vietnam. And I just wanted to emphasize to, you know, all the Persian Gulf, the younger guys and things that you do need help and you shouldn't wait to come around and get help. And he ended up dying. He was diagnosed with at least three different effects of Agent Orange. So uh, at the end of his life, he never, still never said anything in this was like a, you know, a, tr a tribute to him on how war and effects can change you mentally and your output on life. So I encourage people to seek help if they need it. Uh, go to support groups. Use the VA benefits, you know, if you're available. And especially if you know younger vets. I mean, that's what VVA, VVI all these support groups are for is to get people to go and help themselves. We've had younger vets here and they've talked about their problems in that. And it's just so typical. All of us, everyone's a veteran or has different consequences from service. Um, please go and seek advice and help and i don't know if we have any younger veterans here we do have younger veterans here and we also have ryan all here from the uh, va vet center ryan i mean this is kind of what you do you're always encouraging people to to seek help if you wouldn't mind just saying a word or two and invite people to 
refer to you yeah, if absolutely. they know anybody. Uh, my name is Ryan All. Uh, I'm a Iraq veteran. I was uh, deployed two times. I'm still in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard, and currently I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs Vet Center. Uh, and we are a community-based arm of the VA who uh, provides readjustment counseling to war zone veterans and their families. What makes us a little different is we're not in the hospital, we're out in the community. Uh, my vet center's located in Green Tree. Uh, we also have one in McKeesport and one in Wheeling, but there's 300 across the, across the United States. We also have mobile vet centers to reach people in rural uh, areas. What is uh, especially unique uh, about us is that all of our counselors are veterans themselves which was important to me uh, when I sought some counseling for some of the experiences that I went through. I'll leave some pamphlets here in the, in the front. Please do. Uh, and I'll leave my card here as well, and I'll be available to, to speak with anybody. But um, if you know of anybody who needs help, please reach out to us, and we're happy to help them. Uh, we uh, reduce the barriers to treatment as much as possible. Walk-ins are always welcome at our clinic. We have group therapy as well, usually organized by ERAs, but we do some cross some cross groups as well so that uh, the younger veterans can learn from the from the older ones as well so i'll be around uh we're located in green tree we're called the vet center um and i'll leave some pamphlets on the front desk thanks don thank you ryan and thank you don i i know we are very close to the time when we usually stop but i would like to extend it just a, a bit uh to have an important story told this is george hot George has an important story to tell. He came to a breakfast for the first time last April and kind of told me his story. And it, it was something that I've read about, certainly in the history books. But to meet somebody who was there is really special. And that's a picture of you, George. Yeah, 1967. 1967. How old were you? 19. <laughs> 19, huh? And why did you join the Marines? Uh, myself and four other friends from back in Ohio, we kind of made a pact that we were going to take and join the Marine Corps together, and we carried through. There's only two of us left now, but uh, had to do it all over. I'd probably do the same thing. You would, huh? You <laughs> yes. would do it even after what you went through? You would do it the same thing? I would. I would. Uh, Petrie's got up there now is uh, my gun platoon. Three people on the left are the only ones left after the battle I'm going to tell you about. January 31st, 1968, Battle of Way City during the Tet Offensive. We moved out of Fu by about 07.30. We were supposed to go to Way City to help out the MACV compound, which is the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam. 300 of us went out. There was supposed to be a couple hundred NVA soldiers within there. We got there, first thing we seen was a blown up tank. We figured if they could take out a tank, they had some pretty good armament. So we started getting fire from buildings on two sides. We jumped off the truck. We done frontal assaults, wiped out the buildings, took us about three hours before we caught up with another unit that had been dispatched right before us. They had lost half of their men. We hooked up with them, fought our way into the MACB compound. It took us about five hours of fighting to get there. Once we got there, people inside the MACB compound were applauding because they had taken numerous assaults over the night. The compound had actually been overrun two times. There was only a couple dozen advisors in there. So when we got there, they was kind of glad to see us. About two hours after we got there, we were told we had to go across the Perfume River to take in 
extract and the South Vietnamese general. We go across. That bridge there? That bridge there. We go across that bridge, get halfway across the bridge. We started taking machine gun fire, mortars, rockets. When the rockets hit the abutment of the bridge, the whole bridge started shaking. There were 150 of us when we went across. We, we took off running. The picture that Todd had just shown previously, gentleman on the right is Clyde Carter. Clyde was the first one killed across the bridge. That's me with him. He was trying to set up his machine gun to counter the machine gun fire that we were taking. Then I was the next gun up. They called me, and there was a Marine that jumped up in front of me, threw his rifle over his neck, pulled two grenades, pulled the pins on the grenades as he was running across the bridge. He got to the other side of the bridge, run straight at the machine gun, threw the first grenade directly into the bunker, second grenade went in, took his machine gun off and went up, and he fired a burst into there just to make sure Everybody was dead. We go about quarter mile, half a mile. From there, we make a right. See this huge NVA flag. Flagpole is probably about 130 feet up in the air. It's a huge wall, about 40 feet high. We started taking fire from 230 caliber machine guns on each end of it along the half a mile section where we got got hit, there was two levels of fire coming at us from the top and at about 25 feet up, small arms and light machine guns. We were probably taking five, 10,000 rounds a minute in. We just got chewed up. I mean, every, everybody that went across was wounded in some form or fashion. How many of the enemy were there in Hawaii City and how many of you? There was 300 of us there were 16,000 or a division of them. It took us 31 days to take and clear the city out. You eventually got hit. Here's your Purple Heart. And, and That's one of the three, yes. One of the three. Yes. I ended up with three Purple Hearts. Well, one in this battle, but that, that one, I was on top of the university, and we were firing in support of another unit, and uh, I don't know what even what even exploded around me or ricocheted, but the top of the university was terracotta, and the shards were just going all over, and I got five or six of them embedded into my temple and in above my eye. They took, took the stuff out, I had to take and go back. Most guys, when they got wounded, didn't even go back because it took somebody out of the fight. They needed all of you. Correct. Um, so they put some powder on it, some butterflies, and a compression bandage, and sent me back out. And like I said, 31 days and first 36 hours, the 300 of us were in there by ourselves. We lost 24 men in the first 24 hours dead. We had 136 seriously wounded within the first 24 hours under normal circumstances. They would have been medevaced, but we couldn't even get helicopters in. We could get no fire support. We could get no airstrikes or anything because of the weather. 
and the rules of engagement. We were forbidden to use anything but our rifles. And of these, again, of all those men who served in that battle, the only three who survived are on the left. Correct. And you're one of them. Yeah, I'm all the way in the back there. George, we're going to get your whole story or much more of your story on Friday when we interview you. Uh, But I did want to add just this one coda because I thought it was so interesting. Last April, at the breakfast, George was here sitting with uh, Rich Kimzelski, some Vietnam veterans. I think Rich was one of them. Mm -hmm. And one of them mentioned, do you know there was a Life magazine photo of a Marine in Hue City from New Brighton? And he said, I've never been able to identify who that is. So I took it upon myself to try and find this photo. And it turns out, I don't think it was a Life magazine photo. I think it was a Signal Corps photo. I think it was a Department of Defense photo. And I think this is it. Uh, It it did appear in many publications in 1968. And there is the man without a shirt who's bandaged. It says his name is uh, D.A. Crum, C-R-U-M, from New Brighton, Pennsylvania. And I was just wondering if anybody knew who he was. You know, Todd, I have seen you. You know who he is, Don? He was in our class. He was in your class? Yeah, Crum. Crum. This is kind of an iconic photo from the Vietnam War. I've seen this photo before. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting, Don. So, Don, you knew him, huh? Does anybody know if D.A. Crum is still around? You didn't even know he went over. Interesting. It is. And... During, during the battle, I mean, there was, there was only 2,000 Marines that served there. So, and I, like I, I told you at the Meadows, I got contact information for another Way City vet that lives in Beaver Falls. So, I mean, it's kind of an anomaly to have three of us. Yeah, yeah, so close. Yeah, which I have to take and get together with them. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, George, for talking about this, however thank briefly. You. Thank you. Um, as I always say, we have more stories than we could possibly cover in one breakfast, so that's why we're having another one on August 3rd, and I do hope you can make it. We have a lot of stories that are on the, uh, on the agenda for that breakfast, and some are left over from today. All right, United Methodists. Here we go. God bless America. God bless America. Could you lead us? Okay. been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thank you.